Good to see everybody. I'm glad to see that uh, your alarm clocks were working and properly set. Uh, it always seems like it's just a little bit way too early on the, the Sunday of Palm Sun, or of uh, Daylight Savings Time. But we're glad that you're here to, uh, with us on this first Sunday in the Lenten season. We're nearing the end of our series uh, looking at the Old Testament book of Nehemiah about how God rebuilds broken things. Last week I rattled off this list of R's that kind of uh, tell the whole story uh, thus far, from the ruin of the ancient city to going back to rebuild, to repelling their enemies, reading the word of God, which leads to repentance and revival, to renewing of their covenant relationship with God. Then last week we looked at repopulating the city, and today we're going to culminate all that in this tremendous experience of rejoicing. What we'll read today describes this large, massive, citywide worship event. I mean, it was a, it was a happening. It was a, it was a moment, almost an, an ancient urban Woodstock kind of experience of music and celebration, of feasting, and of faith and of family. So I'm going to read a portion of this from Nehemiah chapter 12, starting with verse 27, if you'd like to read along. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs and thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gigal, and from the area of Jabbah and Osmabeth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. And when the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates and the walls. And I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall, and I assigned the two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on the top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate, and then he names all the musicians, and down in verse 36. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession, and at the fountain gate they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction, and I followed them on top of the wall, together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim to the Jeshana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate and the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God, and so did I, and together with half the officials as well as the priests, and then he has this long list of their names, down to verse 43. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you just for this snapshot, this picture of rejoicing, of this worship experience that happened in Jerusalem so long ago. And may you take their experience, Lord. Help us to understand what we are doing here this morning, but also what we're doing with our lives as we seek to worship you and to rejoice in you this day. So give us your spirit now. In Christ's name we do ask it. Amen. Well, there's something that all of you have in common here this morning. Everybody here today, and in fact, you share this in common with every person on the planet. You're all good at it. 
even experts. No matter your age, gender, ethnicity, background, your height, your weight, your agility, your spiritual depth, or even your education, you all share this one quality in equal measure. You are all expert worshipers. Now let me explain that for a minute. The idea of worship is widely misunderstood. When people think of that word worship, it's seen as something you know that religious people do together when they get together. Christians and people of other faiths, well, that's what their meetings are for, right? I mean, that's what worship is, right? Well, no, wrong. Worship is not just something that religious people do. Everybody, religious and non-religious people, we all worship and we do it all the time. You see, worship means to treat something with value. To treat something with value. To give a person, a thing, a position of significance or centrality or importance in your life. That's what worship is. Worship is what motivates you. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. Your, your deepest desires, your longings, your hopes. Those are all the things that you value. And the more we value things, the more we actually worship them. What you worship is your, your source of joy. It's your sense of purpose. What you worship, it's that weighty, significant person or thing or belief or idea that's in your life. And so worship is something that all people do all the time. In fact, it's what we were made to do. We were created to worship. I mean, I can't prove this scientifically, but the Bible teaches that the instinct, the desire, the necessity of worship is sort of hardwired into our personality, our psyche. And so we were made to worship something. And so we are all worshipers, and we worship all the time. And not just one hour a week on a Sunday morning in a white building with uncomfortable seats. We worship all the time. We worship all kinds of things. Your children, your car, your spouse, your job, your boyfriend, your looks, your intellect, your health, your sexuality, your home, your money, your abilities. It's whatever you value. You're dedicated to it. You're committed to it. It's what takes your time, your energy, your money, your passion. That's what you worship. And what we worship doesn't always match up with what other people worship. That's why there's conflict in the world. We don't all worship the same things. For example, this afternoon, let's say you're walking out of the Smashburger restaurant over here. Uh, After having a big lunch, you're kind of wrapped in the aroma of a double bacon cheeseburger, and you run into a person, and they're wearing a T-shirt that says, meat is murder. Okay, there could be a tussle there, because you worship different things. You have different value systems. You look at the world differently. That's because we don't all worship the same thing. So the real issue is who or what do we worship? What occupies the position of highest honor and praise and value in your mind and in your heart? Bob Dylan wrote a song about this a long time ago. He said, you've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you have got to serve somebody. You see, the problem is not that we're instinctive worshipers. It's that we tend to worship the wrong things or get our worship misplaced. The Apostle Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1 where he talks about how we have this instinct to worship. But what we do is we end up worshiping created things rather than the creator. 
Paul describes this downward spiral of what happens when wrong things take first place. When Christ is demoted, we experience an inversion in our worship, an inversion of worshiping created things rather than the creator. We go upside down. Created things are usually good things, very good things, but they're not designed to be God for us. We go upside down. Your children, your environment, the career, your, your, your sports, your boyfriend, all those things might be very good things, but they are not to be your God. God gives us good things as a blessing for this life, to enjoy. But when the inversion happens, when they are worshipped, when we worship any created thing in the place of our God, that's called paganism. Paganism. Paganism is not just a motorcycle gang. Paganism is where created things take the place of glory and the creator God gets overlooked, neglected, dismissed altogether. Go back and read Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 25 this afternoon. I really challenge you to do that. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. A worship inversion. We go upside down. Go back and read Romans 1 and tell me if that doesn't perfectly describe what's happening in our culture today. All of life's struggles and conflicts go back to this one question. What do you really worship? What's at the top of your value pyramid? That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things, money, clothes, relationships, all these other things will be given to you as well, but in their proper order, their proper context. That's Matthew 6, verse 33. The real issue is always about worship. So if you're here today and you're struggling with money issues or relationship issues or worrying about your future, the real issue is probably a worship issue. It's not about white-knuckling it or getting better habits or having a better system. It's about making sure that God, your creator, and Jesus, your redeemer, and the Holy Spirit, your sanctifier, that you're giving him first place and your life is dedicated to him. Because when you worship your creator... Scripture says that leads to joy and to life. That's what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 12. God hadn't been worshipped in Jerusalem for a very long time, like 140 years. That's a lot of darkness. I mean, they were in a big mess. People were pursuing creation instead of the creator. They were completely pagan. You see, all gods are not the same. They worshiped gods of nature, gods of sex, gods of power, and did not worship the God who revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to Moses and David, and now to Nehemiah. When the people gathered to hear the word of God in chapter 8, you know, they spent a lot of time dealing with these issues of worship and idolatry because those are major themes in the first five books of the Old Testament, which is what Ezra read to them. Ezra would have taught them about the Ten Commandments. Here's the first two, love God and no idols. They would have learned about that because those are about the worship. And the, uh, here's the other eight. And that's what happens when you don't get worship right. And so they would have spent a lot of time focusing in on what worship was. And Ezra would have taught them, you've got to get your worship right. 
And so now they worship in a big way. Worship is their answer to God's action. A huge event with musicians and choirs. It's like they got marching bands and parades going on across the top of the wall. And they're making as much noise as they possibly can. Remember when they first started to rebuild the wall? And their critics ridiculed them saying, you know, what you're doing, it's such a pathetic mess. If a fox jumped on top of that wall, it would all fall down. Well, now they're standing there with thousands of people marching across the top of this wall. Almost to say, in your face, in your face, this is what we have accomplished. In full view, we are giving praise to God so that our critics will know who God really is. God is being worshipped in Jerusalem in a way that he had not been worshipped there for a really long time. And so their enemies are hearing these songs of rejoicing and celebration That's what worship is all about, rejoicing in the Lord. And so rejoicing for them was their joyous witness to their living relationship with with the God of their ancestors. But they weren't focused on the past. They were saying, "God, God isn't dead. He's alive. He did stuff in the past with our ancestors, sure. But we're celebrating the fact that he is up to something right now. So there's joy in their hearts. There's instruments in their hands And there was a song on their lips. Folks, their worship was a celebration of all who God really is. It was an experience of real power and the presence of God. An experience that touched their emotions, their intellect, even their physical bodies. You know, when I get together with other pastors, inevitably somebody will bring up a topic that we euphemistically call the worship wars. There isn't anything, any topic that causes greater conflict in churches than debates about the style of worship or what's appropriate for worship. If not handled well, these worship wars cause deep division and heartache, often lead to church splits or to pastors getting fired. Now, I'm thankful we are past all that in this congregation. We've recognized that when it comes to worship, one size does not fit all. And so we're able to comfortably embrace a variety of styles. I mean, we have four different kinds of worship services on Sunday mornings. There aren't many churches that can pull that off because we've embraced a bigger vision of what worship can be, that the Lord Jesus Christ can be honored in a variety of styles of worship. And what's so sad about churches is that they fight over worship, and it means that they're focusing on the how of worship instead of the who. Should it be organ or guitar, drums or liturgies or whatever, instead of the who, Jesus Christ? It's good for us to remember that the style of worship has changed dramatically over the centuries, and it's still changing. In Nehemiah's day, they worshiped God with all kinds of instruments, string lyres that were played like guitars, uh, harps and pipes and reeded flutes like oboes, all kinds of drums. They had these huge standing drums that had to be played by three people, as well as funnel drums that they carried over their shoulders and snare drums. They had tambourines, castanets, brass cymbals, silver trumpets, the shofar, the ram's horn that could be heard at great distances, People were singing and shouting and chanting. They had choirs, music guilds, male and female soloists. There was a lot of physical expression, clapping, bowing, kneeling, lifting the hands, dancing, whirling like the whirling dervishes of modern Egypt and Turkey. Groups of young girls who danced in worship, even sword dances. That's all described for us in the book of Psalms. 
They worshipped with great passion, fully animated. They were not passive spectators in their worship. They were physically involved. They were emotionally engaged. They were intellectually tuned in. But over time, things change. By the first century, the Jewish people were a conquered people again. By this time, by the Romans. And the temple had sort of split off some of their worship responsibilities to local gatherings called synagogues. Temple worship was now primarily sacrificial, and it was controlled by the priests. The synagogue was for instruction and teaching, and there had more of a common feel about it. Worship had been tamed down considerably from the emotion and the elation that we see in the celebration in Nehemiah's day. It was much more formalized and reserved. And in fact, Jesus was frequently critical of kind of the cold and sterile and hypocritical worship of his day. After his resurrection, early Christians' worship kind of leaned very heavily on their Jewish roots, and they really borrowed sort of the synagogue model for first century Christian worship. As a persecuted minority, they had to meet secretly in homes. They didn't have sanctuaries. And so they sang hymns and wrote and psalms. They wrote their own hymns. They read the Old Testament. They read the writings of the apostles. They had sermons and prayers, but everybody contributed to worship. But it was fairly unstructured and kind of casual. They usually had food, hence the origin of the church potluck supper. By the 4th century, though, the church had become much more established, became kind of the official church of the Roman Empire under Constantine. And so the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, began to emerge as the central focus of worship. The spontaneity of even first century worship was replaced by a more formalized style. A a cantor did most of the singing unaccompanied by musicians. Worship became standardized, and the church leaders wanted things to be uniform. And so worship style became prescribed and controlled by the clergy, by the hierarchy. The Gregorian chant was introduced, and music instruments were actually banned from worship. The Roman popes tried to mandate the Gregorian chant as the standard form of worship from the 4th to the 9th century. But they had a hard time, especially with the northern German tribes who liked using festive folk music in their worship. And so that clashed with sort of this austere formalism of the Roman chants. And so slowly worship became more and more the property of the clergy. Latin was introduced, and it became the officially sanctioned language of worship. And normal people who didn't speak Latin had less and less of a role in worship. Worship became a spectator sport. During the Middle Ages in the, in the cathedrals there, often the common people couldn't even see what was happening way up in front in the chancel. They weren't allowed up there. They were literally fenced off, fenced off from the chancel area. So they had no access to even what was being said. They just had to stand there. Worship became further and further removed from the common people, and it became a real means of power and control by the clergy. Well, during the Protestant Reformation, it brought dramatic changes to worship. The reformers wanted to return to the centrality of Scripture in worship, and they wanted to give faith to the common people. And that's why it was such a big deal that they they got rid of Latin, that they started doing their worship services in the indigenous tongues of the people where they lived. They translated Scripture into the language of the people, and the Bible became center of worship, and the preaching of the Word became center They emphasized preaching and singing and used the psalms in worship, but they wrote their own hymns too. 
often adapted from the Psalms. We still sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther, adapted from Psalm 46. They used folk songs to enhance their melodies. But since then, the pendulum on worship continues to kind of swing back and forth over time. And there's a real battleground still. Classical worship versus contemporary, whatever those means, words mean. You know, organ versus guitar, choir conductor versus praise team. On one extreme, you get worship that is stiff and formal. It feels like you're going to a funeral rather than a celebration. It's rote and repetitive. It lacks emotion and power. There are churches in our region where their worship service is exactly as it was in the 1770s. Same hymns, same liturgies, and their clergy even dress exactly the same as if they were in the 1770s. Worship has become a means of preserving the past rather than encountering the living God. No wonder you walk into some churches and it feels like you're going into a museum. On the other extreme, the charismatic revivals of the 1950s and singing 60s brought a more expressive style of worship with raising hands and clapping and enthusiastic singing. The, the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s introduced rock and roll into worship. And music from the African-American church kind of brought soul back to church. And so now the other extreme, it could even lead to, you know, what we would call trendy worship that that looks overly emotional, that feels more like a rock concert than a, a light show, that attracts, you know, inspiration junkies rather than real worshipers, that's more concerned about, you know, looking cool or cutting edge than really honoring Christ. And what we need to do is always to pursue a culturally relevant way to worship. To worship the living Lord, to encounter him. Worship is always our response to the triune God. And we celebrate, we honor him, we rejoice with music that reflects the real life of people, with prayers that speak from the heart, with the sacraments that that bind us to the Lord, with a deepening understanding of scripture, and a challenge to live out our discipleship in the world. Society is changing so rapidly all the time. So there will be changes in the form and the presentation of worship. And that's not a bad thing. But our main focus should always be on the who and not the how. And so as a response to today's message, I want you to come to something. I want you to come to a very special event, a Christ Fest, that we're having on Friday night, March 25th. A special worship experience that's very different from what we are traditionally used to, I think. Focus solely on the Lord Jesus Christ. No preaching, just kind of a a, a multimedia but also personal experience of the Lord Jesus. An opportunity to encounter him in a fresh and dynamic way. It's led by our own David Bryant, and he's done this in churches all across the country to bring renewal to churches and also, excuse me, new life to believers who've maybe lost some of their passion for the Lord. I want you to go to the website today and register. And don't give up chocolate for Lent. You know, give up a Friday night for Christ and come to the Christ Fest. Give up a Friday night. Do something meaningful because it's a time for us as a church to really rejoice and to celebrate and to focus on the who and not the how of worship. Let's use the Christ Fest to rejoice together. We know what Jesus has done. He's loved us. He lived without sin. He died in our place. He rose for our salvation. And now he reigns in heaven in unparalleled and unprecedented glory. And so we rejoice. 
He gives us a new identity as his children. He gives us new power through his Holy Spirit. He gives us new life through his transforming grace. He gives us new relationships through the church, a new eternity in his heavenly kingdom. And we respond to him. Rejoice. That's what worship is all about. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we can rejoice even on a cloudy morning like this, that we can live each day with this sense of worship where we put you at the top of our worship pyramid. There are lots of good things to value, Lord, but they only make sense when we value you most and we worship you with all our hearts. Then everything else kind of falls into its proper place. And so, Lord, we do pray for this Christ Fest that it would be a moment, a historic moment in the life of our congregation where we, as we hopefully do every Sunday, but in a special way, honor and glorify you. May this church be your light in this dark world. And, Lord, we give you all the praise and glory, for we belong to you. In your name we do pray. Amen.